And that one day, like all earthly kingdoms, it would fall. In response, Nebuchadnezzar actually acknowledged Daniel's God, calling him the God of gods and the Lord of kings. But now that some time has passed, King Nebuchadnezzar decides he needs to build a golden statue that all people are meant to worship. Rather than remembering who God truly is, he takes it upon himself to try and unite all people in a common worship of a statue of his own making. It's actually kind of a comical account to read, given how much repetition that there is in it. The king calls all the peoples together and commands them that when they hear the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, they are to worship the image that he has made. And in case he didn't get that in verse 5, verse 7 tells us that when they heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all people worship the image Nebuchadnezzar made. And in case you didn't get it there, guess what? Verses 11 and 15 repeat the same thing. By the fourth time we hear this list, and that Nebuchadnezzar made this statue, and that all people worshipped it, we're kind of thinking like, all right, we got, we got the point here. If we had included the whole reading, we would have heard it even more. We think we get the point, but do we actually? Do we see what the point is here? There's a reason for this repetition. I've said before, and I will say again, I will repeat. When you notice repetition in scripture, pay attention to it. There is a reason why things are being repeated. Daniel is hammering a point home here. It's that Nebuchadnezzar is taking something good and twisting it into something terrible. The good thing is worship. You see, all people are made in the image of God and we're created to be in relationship with him. We were created to worship him. But ever since the fall of man, we human beings worship anything but the one for whom we were created. We embrace the sin of idolatry. In this case, the idol is a statue made by human hands. And as with all idols, worship of it consumes the people. Their daily lives are now centered around worshiping this idol. Whenever they heard the music, I'll spare us the list. Whenever they heard the music, the call to worship, they were meant to stop whatever it is they were doing, bow down and worship this idol. On top of that, there is a universal quality to this account. It is something that all people are commanded to do, no exceptions. This idol consumes all people and all aspects of their lives. It's forming them, shaping them, conditioning them so that it can control them. That is what idols do, including whatever the idol is we are tempted to worship 
today. Make no mistake, idolatry is not just a problem of the past. It's not just something that occurred in the ancient world. It is a problem here and today. Idolatry is worshiping anything other than God. There's a reason why Daniel is highlighting the universal nature of idol worship here. It's because all of us are tempted to it. It is a universal. And day by day, even Christians are faced with the question of whether or not we will have Jesus at the center of our lives or any number of other things that we are tempted to put in his place. I love this quote by one of my favorite writers guy by the name of Ross Dothit. He's the religion columnist for the New York Times. He wrote a book called Bad Religion. He says this, At the deepest level, every human culture is religious, defined by what its inhabitants believe about some ultimate reality and what they think that reality demands of them. The reality doesn't have to be a personal god. It can be the iron laws of Marxism the religion of blood and soil, the Gaia hypothesis, the church of the free market, the cult of the imperial self. But Bob Dylan had it right. You got to serve somebody. And every culture does. Although most of us do not worship golden statues anymore, It is a universal temptation to worship not the one who created us, but the things we have created, just as Nebuchadnezzar is teaching his people to do. And make no mistake, there are those out there who will teach people, even today, to do the same thing, to worship anything but the one we were created to worship. And so the question that we have before us is, can we recognize when we have an idol in our life? Can we see it for what it is? Easy way to find out. Ask, what is it that I feel like I can't live without? What is it that I wake up thinking about and then I go to sleep and I dream about? Is there something in my life that if God told me I needed to give it up, I'd go into full panic mode? Start to ask those questions and all of a sudden God starts showing us things. I don't know about all of you, but when I've gotten that full panic mode, that's when I go into full negotiation mode. (laughs) Yeah, Lord, I know I probably shouldn't spend eight hours a day on my phone. I'll spend three. How about that? That's good enough, right? I know I shouldn't plan all of my Saturday around the Notre Dame game. (laughs) Maybe just say half of it, right? We go back and forth with God, hoping he'll ease it on us a little bit. It might just be good enough. The problem with an idol, any idol, whatever it might be, it consumes us. It shapes us into its own image and becomes the center of our lives. That's true if the idol is money or financial security. It's true if it's the idol of ideology or conformity or individual freedom or family or social justice or any of the things that we make into idols. Whatever the idol is, it demands our loyalty and that we look to it for our salvation. And when that happens, we cease worshiping Jesus. That is the challenge to faithfulness. 
the universal human desire, the good human desire we have to worship, and how human sinfulness twists that into idol worship. take a look at the challenge of faithfulness. That was the challenge two. Let's look at the challenge of why is it so hard to be faithful? Why do we struggle with it so much? Well, actually what these three young men go through shows us it in two ways. The first is that being faithful often means standing up when others won't. Throughout the passage, We heard over and over again that all people bowed down and worshipped this image that was made. But these three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they didn't do it. They refused to worship the image. Verses 16 through 18 make it clear that there is no way they are going to worship this statue. And it's because of their faithfulness. You see, for a faithful Jew, worshiping anything other than God was breaking rule number one of the faith. And by the way, the same is true of the Christian faith. It's the first of the Ten Commandments, right? I am the Lord your God. You will have no other gods but me. In other words, God is the only one we are to worship. And these three stand by that. They say we know who our God is. And we are not worshiping anything or anyone else. But they are just three among a crowd of who knows how many. They stand out in the crowd for their refusal to bow down to how their society wants them to live. And they're the only three. That is not a comfortable place to be in. Standing up for the faith when no one else will is extremely challenging. Standing for the faith means taking a risk, means potentially being embarrassed. It means potentially being a social outcast. For our three guys here and for many Christians around the world even today, it means putting your life at risk. And so it's tempting just to zip it up. Keep quiet. Just go along to get along, live to fight another day. But as we do that, as we compromise our beliefs and decide to keep silent, it becomes easier and easier to let another thing go. And then another thing. And then another thing. Until our faith is so whittled away that it becomes unrecognizable. If we needed examples of this, there are countless out there. I could fill the rest of our day with examples of this. And so the temptation is to bow. Even for those of us who have stood before. Because standing isn't easy, is it? That's the first challenge of faithfulness. The second is this. Being faithful doesn't guarantee things are going to go our way. There's a myth out there, I don't know who started it, but it's out there, that Christianity promises you a life that is just wine and roses. Believe in God, follow him, and your life will be all that you've ever wanted it to be. That's not the witness of our three 
young men here, is it? Look at verses 17 and 18. They've been threatened with being thrown in the furnace. And then they say this, If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... That's a big statement. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. That is a response of faithfulness right there. They are saying to the king that they believe that God can deliver them, but even if he doesn't, he's still God. Whether this account ends with them living or dying, God is still God, and no matter what, they are with him. No matter what. You see, to be faithful means that our view of God doesn't change based on the circumstances that we face. Whether the Lord gives or takes away, he is still the Lord, and the faithful response is no matter what, we know that he is God. As is always the case, this posture was modeled perfectly not by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but by Jesus himself. On the night before Jesus faced the cross, he went into a garden in agony to pray. And he prayed that he would not have to face what was before him. But more importantly, he prayed that God's will would be done. Jesus, lying on the ground in intense prayer, remained faithful. And though he asked if the cup could pass to another, he followed God to the cross in absolute and perfect faithfulness. It wasn't easy. Read the accounts of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You could put a lot of words to that account, but easy is not one of them. And if it was not easy for Jesus, we should not assume that those of us who follow him will find it easy either. And if that's the case, we're going to need some help, aren't we? The challenge to faithfulness is the universal temptation to idolatry. The challenge of faithfulness, what makes it so hard, is that things won't necessarily go our way. And it might mean being singled out in an uncomfortable and difficult way. But there is good news. And that good news is the glory of faithfulness. See, the truth is that none of us can be faithful on our own. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not going to be faithful on their own. When these three stand before the king... They are met with a stunningly arrogant question. This is an all-time level of arrogance. Not surprisingly, it comes from Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar asks them, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? That, is a, <laughs> that takes a serious level of arrogance even to think that, never mind say it. And the response boils down to our goddess. Our God can deliver us. Our God is more powerful than you or anyone else. It is a statement of utter conviction. It's a statement of faith. 
They look the king in the eye, a king who is on the verge of taking their lives, and they say in verse 16, we don't need to answer you in this. That takes some guts. Nebuchadnezzar is crazy. He can't stop killing people. And they look at him and say, we don't even need to answer you. That takes faith. It is a statement born out of the sure knowledge that they worship the God in heaven who is greater than all of this. And the only place that sort of faithfulness will come from is knowing that very thing, that we worship the God in heaven who is greater than all of this. If we try to do it on our own, friends, we will not do it. We will fail. But if we know our God, if we have faith in him, he is able to strengthen us in those moments when our faith is being challenged or the temptation to worship an idol is coming upon us. When we know God, we too can say to that idol or that situation or that accuser, we don't need to answer you in this. We don't need to answer your accusations. We don't need to answer you, secular society, when you think we're kind of nuts for worshiping Jesus. We don't need to answer you. Because what you say and what you do and what I say and what I do does not change the truth that God is still God. And our God rules and reigns over everything. It's his will that will be done no matter what. And so accusations and assaults and threats can come. But we are to be with him no matter what. And he empowers us to do it. It doesn't happen because we just will it to be so. Thanks be to God. He doesn't ask us to just will it to be so. He freely offers it to us. Jesus told his disciples not to worry when they are brought before kings and rulers, that the Holy Spirit would teach them in that moment what to say and how to say it. That same promise is there for us as well. True, most of us will not be dragged into a court to defend our faith, though I suppose it could happen. It has happened to some. But all of us who believe in Jesus will be called, at, called upon at some point to give the reason for the hope that we have. All Christians will face situations, and I'm sure all of us in this room already have, where something is happening around us or being said in front of us that is not in any way in line with the faith that we have. Be it a friend or a relative, whatever it might be, somebody stating as fact that which is in stark opposition to our faith. It's in that moment that we can pray silently in our heart, in our mind, asking God to show us by his Holy Spirit how we are to engage with that, how we are to speak to that person, what to say and how to say it. We can do that because of the other part of the glory of faithfulness. It's God's promise to be with us in the fire, in the midst of our challenge. If you were to ask most Christians about Daniel chapter 3 and what they remember from it, it's actually not something that gets repeated multiple times, shockingly. (laughs) It would be that three men went into a furnace, but when the king looked for himself, there were four. Beginning in verse 24. 
The king Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared this to his counselors. Did we not cast three men bound in the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of fire and they are not hurt. And the fourth and the the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Now, much ink has been spilt over the years over who this fourth man is and where he came from. Some have argued that it's an angel of the Lord. Some have argued that it's Jesus himself. To be honest, I'm actually not that interested in that question. I'm far more interested in the principle that lies behind this account. It's God's promise to be with us in the fires that we face to be with us always. See, in this case, we see it tangibly, right? And his protection is so complete that they are not touched by the fire in any way. Their clothes, them, nothing. Completely protected. Now, it may not always be the case that we walk away from our trials untouched. And it's important to note that God never promises to keep us from trials or that they'll end in the way that we want. Only that he will be with us in them. The principle behind this is what we might call the Emmanuel principle. It's one that Christians should know very well. Matthew chapter 1, the angels appear and tell Joseph that Mary is going to have a son who will save people from their sins. Matthew goes on to tell us this. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Here's the key part. Emmanuel, which means God with us. That is who Jesus is. He is God with us, and he is always with us if we believe in him. If we have faith in him, that is the glory of faithfulness. It is the sure knowledge and conviction that God is with us, that Jesus is for us. Just as Jesus faced the cross and these three men faced the furnace, so we too will face challenges and trials. But as we do, we know that we worship not some useless idol, but the God who is with us, Emmanuel. I may not know the circumstances that you all face, but I know many of us are facing difficult ones. And I know that if you are in Christ, Jesus stands with you in it. You are not alone in the challenges that you face. I know that no matter what the challenges that we face as a church are, or that we face as individuals, Jesus stands with us in them. He is for us. And he empowers us to be faithful to him. And thanks be to God for it, because without him, (laughs) we wouldn't be faithful at all. The glory of faithfulness is knowing Christ's presence and power in our lives and giving him the credit, the honor, and the glory for us. Because when we live lives of Christ-powered faithfulness, we are certainly blessed by it, even when it doesn't look like it, and others take notice.
Don't believe me? Look at King Nebuchadnezzar's words himself. He sees the faithfulness of these three, and he says, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. That is the man who set up the idol to begin with, responding to the faithfulness of God's people. The glory of faithfulness is that we know Jesus and others come to know him as well. The glory of faithfulness is the glory of God being praised rather than nameless, faceless, powerless, meaningless, unhelpful, useless idols. We see the glory of faithfulness in our church and in our lives each and every day. And may Jesus now and forever be given the honor, the praise, and the glory for it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you do empower your people to be faithful. And we pray, Lord, that you would help each and every one of us here at St. Aidan's to be faithful to your call in our lives. For those of us who have maybe never submitted to your call, that you would empower us now to receive the gift of your Son. That you would open our hearts to your saving work on our behalf. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.